back to Old Soul Podcast. My name is Brie, that's spelled B-R-E-I. Thank you so much. Today's film commentary will be about the film The Secret Life of Bees. It was released in the year 2008. It is rated PG-13 and it has a runtime of an hour and 54 minutes. The director is named Gina Prince by the Wood. Her last name is hyphenated and the by the wood actually is spelled the way that it sounds b-y-t-h-e-w-o-o-d so just wanted to clarify that in case it sounds odd with my pronunciation okay so the secret life of bees is set in the 1960s specifically south carolina in 1964 it depicts the life of many women, but we do basically follow from beginning to end the life of a young girl whose character name is Lily. And I think I will just go down the line with the characters and then talk about their background, how they connect, and some overarching themes in the film instead of going specifically from beginning to end just because I feel like it will be easier on me and things like that but I wanted to start by saying that I realized with this watch I have seen The Secret Life of Bees before and I remember loving it and I remember quite a bit about it but obviously if it's been a long time since you've seen a film you always notice something new when you do go back to it. I still relate to this film almost even more as an adult now than I did when I was a kid and I didn't really realize how much of like a girl's girl's film this is. I feel like if the main character had been a black girl, although I don't have any disputes about the way that it is depicted in the way that they decided to go about this film. But sometimes, in certain parts of the film, it feels like so authentic to the black experience and in a way that is not stereotypical while still harping on the violence of just simply existing as a black person on screen, in real life. Sometimes I forgot that there were non-black characters in the film outside of certain sections because it felt very much like a love letter to black women in some, some spots and I appreciated that and it was really comforting and it felt like going home. In some moments of the film, especially I think the second half of the film, and so I'll kind of get into that too, but I just wanted to note that a little bit. So basically we're starting with Lily as the main character throughout the film and it does sort of branch off a little bit and like I said, the second half feels like almost a different movie but not in a way that it feels like it didn't know what it was doing or it had bad pacing, but it did feel like there was a major shift and I think it has a lot to do with the character arcs changing and the characters growing as individuals. 
but we see Lily as a child hiding in a closet and we're at ground level so we're seeing you know imagine you're a kid and you're very small and you're looking up at an adult who's much taller than you it's basically the perspective we had in the beginning shot of the movie and Lily is like holding this mirror and we see a little reflection of her and we can see that she's a like a baby basically at this time we also see an older woman who we would like presume is her mother which later we find out was her mother and it looks like she's like in a hurry she's packing her bags and then we see a man come in and he's threatening her grabbing her against her will basically saying you're not gonna leave me are you cheating on me things like that and she's saying no and pushing away clearly not consenting to being grabbed or held by him and in some instance there's a gun and it falls on the floor I don't really know where it came from why it was there but it's on the floor Lily grabs it and then we hear a gunshot go off and we see a marble drop to the ground presumably a marble that Lily was playing with cut to Lily being much older waking up from probably a dream or more like a nightmare or flashback who knows and she's much older she is speaking like as a voiceover that basically the one thing she really learned about herself was that she was the reason her mom was dead and we're presuming that she shot the gun obviously by accident she was a child but she is holding on to this harbored guilt of her mother's no longer in her life she fills that void and she's the cause of that if that was the case because again we didn't actually see what happened we can just hear and assume it doesn't like it clearly was an accident but the fact that she has so much guilt and shame and we find pretty quickly that her father is super possessive sexist <laughs> uh, I'm gonna assume he's racist as well <laughs> just some commentary that he makes some point in the film and he really like allows Lily to attach that guilt to herself by saying things like oh well your mother left she didn't want you either and at some point when we saw you know the mom coming in and like packing up things this was after the mom had already left and had returned if we're kind of you know having some sort of understanding there but yeah and basically the first portion of the film is Lily dealing with her inner demons associated to the guilt of losing her mother feeling like it was her fault whether she believes it was an accident or not to the point where you know she's counting her steps in the on the peach field that I don't know if they own or just you know run that specific one whatever she's a white girl with a white father in the 1960s so there's levels of privilege here and she has you know she pulls out this little box it looks sort of like a jewelry box of some sort of trinkets of things that remind her of her mother to the point where she has a picture of her mom one item amongst other items she places on her stomach it seems that she's trying to be closer to her mom and again she's outside she knows exactly where this box is buried and she keeps it hidden from her 
father who she doesn't call father she calls him t-ray like she gives her father a nickname if that tells you anything about their relationship and she you know kind of stares off in the sky even though it's the middle of the night things like that her dad gets mad about every little thing she does she's clearly walking on eggshells you know her birthday was coming up and she said you know most girls like these but i just want you to tell me something about my mother and then of course he does tell her reluctantly sort of and then he makes it sort of a toxic thing about her mom and like how her mom was crazy so on and so forth and yeah it's just really toxic i can feel the anxiety and the turmoil just everywhere in that home and it's unfortunate to say the least and it seems like the person who she's had around her and who she was able to sort of find some sort of peace with is her, I guess you could call her maid, nanny, worker, and her name is Rosalind. So of course in the 1960s, black people didn't have a lot of options when it came to work. Rosalind seems like she's like a, a nanny, homemaker, whatever, taking care of Lily, which historically black women were known to be basically raising white children and that was the way that they made their money and that's how it was another unfortunate thing but a factual thing uh, but Rosalind has a voice and we see that pretty quickly like she's really strong-minded you can tell there's like she's a little nervous around T-Ray as well but she still stands up to him like telling him hey she needs a new bra we're gonna we need to go into town and he doesn't really fight her on things and she really wants to go into town so she can vote, which is like a new thing that's being passed during this time. You know, she really tests the limits sometimes, um, to the point where she almost loses her life. There is also another scene I want to talk about in terms of like trauma and dynamics with her parent. So there's a scene where the dad is like punishing Lily because he thought she was like kissing boys or whatever sleeping with boys which she wasn't she was just thinking about her mom outside but he literally makes her like kneel down in a little pile of grits is that what they were uncooked grits for like an hour on her knees as punishment and again we see the dynamic like the power dynamic in that you know he's sitting in the chair with his beer and she's like kneeling down and not only is it a physical representation, like a visual representation of that, but like the act of everything going on in that scene is also another extremity of showing the difference in power dynamics, which is really sad. But I just want to talk about that because that's, it seems like an old school punishment, but also it just seems so terrible, <laughs> slightly abusive, maybe entirely abusive, nothing slightly about it, but you know, it's the equivalent of like uh, a whooping or a beating or a spanking but like old school versions of that people would be like well I got spankings and I turned out fine that was like the form of punishment but now when you get older you're kind of like eh, maybe people should not have been doing that to their children the levels of like abuse and the historical context of whoopings in connection to slavery like it's a whole thing of complexities but I just thought the form of punishment was something I should bring up not just because of the power dynamics, but the actual punishment itself. So back to Rosalind. 
of course, like I said, this is the 60s, so not talking about racism would almost be like erasure of what the time was. So, you know, you have little pieces of like what's going on politically, showing clips of like Martin Luther King and talking about voting, but then we see scenes of, you know, white, you know, very violent, vicious, hateful white men saying the N-word with a hard ER. Rosalind basically getting beaten to death and threat her life threatened because she decided to, you know, stand up for herself, whether people agree with the way that she did or not, I don't care, and just things like that, that are another point of showing just how terrible and dangerous and violent racism is and was, and yeah, it's always a really harsh reminder, and I feel like there are people who will say, well, I don't want to watch like slave films or films that talk about older times because I don't, you know, we're past that, and I'm like, yeah, I get that, especially with this generation like not wanting to dwell on those things because it can be very, very taxing on the brain and stressful and traumatic to watch things like that, especially as a black person, but I really, really, really do like that there's a reminder there because I do feel like a lot of people, well, a lot of ignorant people will say things like, oh, that was like a hundred years ago, even though the effects of slavery are still very much present in different forms, whether people want to say it's better or not. And to see it on screen and to know that it was that bad and then some like take everything you've learned about it the horrors that you've heard about slavery and you know before the civil rights movement really actually started to have positive effects and then just know that you still don't know how terrible it was because honestly imagining it isn't even enough to know the horrors of it but Every time I feel like I know enough about it or a lot about it, I hear something else and I'm like, that's f fucking insane, honestly. So it's always a really harsh reminder, but it's something that you should never, ever forget. So just wanted to bring that up. And I do feel like the film does a really good job of staying away from the concept of white savior complexes that we see in films like The Help. Even though I do like The Help, I do acknowledge that there's a lot of problems with that film as well as, you know, things like Green Book, things like that, films like that. I do feel like because of the second half of The Secret Life of Bees, once Lily gets to, you know, the pink house, <laughs> reference to the film, it definitely does the film a justice and makes it sort of settle into the film that it becomes. But I was a little weary that with this watch now being like 25 years old, thinking, huh, is this going to be a white savior film? But I don't think it, it went there. I thought it was going to go there. And in some moments, I kind of saw that, but it quickly reverted back. And I think the thing that saved this film is it was very aware of itself. It, the characters' commentary was funny sometimes. They they had, you know, comic relief. They were just normal, everyday people surviving without all the hecticness of the outside world once we got to the house. And 
but they never stopped acknowledging the privilege. They never let the black characters be, you know, side props. They were the film. Yeah, you know, they brought everything. They even made commentary about the differences and the changes, not just in race, but also with the gender. So that's what made this film better than I think the films that do tend to be or do tend to have a lot of white savior complexes. So, and I don't think this one had that. Okay, so the next character I want to talk about is August. So when I talked about how Rosalind basically almost died and got beat to death because she tried to vote, her and Lily ran away. Basically, it was Lily's idea. She went to get Rosalind in the hospital because she knew that after that hospital visit, Rosalind would probably be killed. So she grabs her and they both run off together. At first, they don't really even know where they're going. But Lily remembers some advertisement for like a honey brand. And then they get to some town and they see that same advertisement. And she asks the owner, like, who owns this? Like, who's in charge of this honey? And then he tells her all the details. And they find out that it's a honey brand that is produced and made by black women. And they even have, I think, I think it's the Virgin Mary or God, I don't know, but it's like a, like a black Virgin Mary or God on the, the label. And so they go there because she remembers that something of her mom's had that on there or just something like that, something similar to that. And they go there and they basically find refuge there. Although not all the sisters are agreeing that she should stay there. There are three sisters, um, June, August, and May, and all their names are like, you know, months in the calendar because their mom like liked certain seasons, so on and so forth. And there's jokes about that too from Rosalind's in. <laughs> and basically they own this brand. They have the bees on their property that was passed down from their grandmother. It's a big old pink painted house, so you can't miss it. Um, we find out later that August was Lily's mother's nanny for a long time, and at some point in the film, August tells Lily that, and they see her, and she comes in, and they kind of don't really know. They know that she's lying about why she's there, but they don't really know all the details, and as time moves on, August, we find out later, kind of realizes that that's the daughter of the, the, the mom who she nannied, and... So that comes full circle. Rosalind takes charge in basically starting to raise Lily and teach her about the way of be ways of being a beekeeper. June has like a whole thing where, you know, they all, <laughs> there are a lot of points in the film where music comes into play, which I think is really pretty and smart because of the casting in this film. But, um, June is played by Alicia Keys, who has a little cello solo at some point, which is really nice. Jennifer Hudson is playing Rosalind, and there's like a little moment where she sings a little bit, so that's really a nice break in the film occasionally. And June's little backstory outside of, you know, August, being August's younger sister, she is very stern, she's not very inviting or trusting, but she clearly loves her sisters. She's strong-willed, she 
is outspoken and she does not want to get married, which she makes very clear in the film until the end. I just want to bring her up mostly because I really like her character and there's a point where, you know, we see lovey-dovey moments between her and her boyfriend who wants to be her fiance and eventually her husband, but he keeps asking her to marry him and she keeps saying no. And then there's a point where we get a scene where they're actually arguing and my thing about it, the reason why I like this sort of friction in the film is that I think one piece of womanhood, something that is put onto women is that you should be married and if you're not married, you're not whole and you aren't really a woman and you should just do this and I think especially in the 60s that would have been a thing but I feel like it's something that's still a thing even if we try to like push back where they just think women need to have babies and get married <laughs> which is annoying and so I really liked that this character was like no I don't want to do that and I'm gonna not do that loudly right and so they have this fight and I think it's frustrating because they could just like not be together at this point. Neither one of them is willing to compromise, but they still love each other and want to be together. But it's not working, clearly. And there's a point where, and again, he has asked her to marry him several times, and she's said no, and she's made it clear that she doesn't want to get married. The problem is that neither one of them want to compromise, therefore they should not be together. That's my solution. I don't think either one of them should compromise because it seems to be very important to both of them that one, they get married, and the other, they don't, so they should just find someone who will fit that part of the narrative that they want for their life. That doesn't happen, sadly. So, the thing about the fight that makes me mad between these two is that the guy immediately calls her a selfish bitch. <laughs> and she gets visibly upset about it and calls him out on it and follows him. And I feel like it's normal to have arguments and fights with your spouse, but I feel like when that happens and the first thing they do is use some sort of like thing against you that is personal or traumatic for you or just out of pocket is a red flag and I think that's another thing that she should not marry him. <laughs> another reason why she shouldn't marry him. But I think it's really annoying that he called her selfish because I don't think her saying that it's a priority, it's not a priority for her to get married is selfish, especially when she's made that clear. And him holding on to the fact that he thinks that he might be able to talk her into it is really, really annoying. And I think a lot more people do that than they want to admit. And I really hate that he called her a bitch because I feel like men do this a lot where they're like, oh, I'm really into you, I'm attracted to you, I like you. And the moment, the moment a girl finds anything like disgusting or disinteresting in a guy and she kind of pushes back immediately, she's a bitch, she's a whore. <laughs> First of all, it's not creative and it's not surprising, but it's really annoying. It's so fucking annoying. I hated that. I hated that, but I did love her fighting back against it. And ultimately, she does marry him. She makes him ask her again. But this time she says yes, and that's like supposed to be like full circle happy ending later in the film. Uh, we even see like a cute scene of her, you know, being mad all day and then coming outside and Lily sprays her with water and they fall down laughing. And then she starts crying because clearly 
she's really upset still about the fight. I just think it's really annoying that they made her get married to him. Because <laughs> it's clearly something that she didn't want to do. And I really doubt that like two days of her sulking was really going to change her mind that much, no matter how much she loved him. And again, I feel like it's another way of telling women to just settle and I don't like it. I'm sure some people are going to think I'm reaching, but I don't think I am. And I feel like stories sometimes do that. They're like, oh, I need to patch this up so I'm going to make it a happy, stereotypical ending when I feel like endings can be happy in other forms, you know? And then we move on to May, who clearly is constantly dealing with a battle of anxiety and loss and grief throughout the film. You know, she has several moments where she starts crying her eyes out for her sister that they lost. I don't remember what her name was, but so she has like this long little wall made of little of stones. It's not too high where she goes and puts notes of things that she's feeling, burdening her and, you know, kind of staying in her body in sort of a, an energy, stressful anxiety way. And she kind of puts it out in a physical form into the world, into, you know, the slots of those stones to kind of relieve herself of all that so it doesn't boil over. She does cry a lot, but that's also another way of her letting out all the things that she's feeling. And I think they say that this comes from like a specific culture and when they heard about it, they thought they should use that for her to be able to, you know, get her feelings out. I don't, ref I don't remember specifically what it was, and so I don't want to say something, and I don't know for sure, but that was explained. And anyway, she's really sweet and loving. I mean, she, if she sees a, a, a bug or something, she will make a trail for them so they can leave the house and not kill them, and then you find out that... Lily's mom did the same thing, so Lily's connecting the dots to this place and where her mother, you know, escaped to and was raised in or around. And she feels at home there, she feels connected because it's a piece of her mother and she's wanted for so long to have pieces of her mother. We see Lily learning about bees and feeling very at home and peaceful around them, not scared of them and she's getting a crush on this boy named Zach who I think is like uh, the nephew of the sisters or something similar to that and that's really sweet for a while because you see their little crush belt boiling up and they're like young teens, early teens maybe. Uh, it is sad later because again we have another really harsh moment back into the reality of the 60s where they get caught, I guess, being in a theater together, and you know how back then it was like color only, white only, whatever. And he nearly gets killed for that, which is fucking insane. But he lives, but not before, you know, everyone is really stressed out and worried about him. And, uh, you know, he was caught with a white girl, and that's a big deal, even though literally not a big deal nowadays, but obviously was back then when that was against the law. May kind of hear, well, she does hear about all this stuff and she's worried about her nephew and she's always, always on edge, always one wrong word away from an, basically it seems like an anxiety attack or panic attack. And this time she goes out to her wall, but she doesn't come back because she takes her life and she kind of right, leaves like a little suicide note for her family 
It's really sad and it made me cry. And I did relate to Mayla a lot because of her anxiety and like the, the panic attacks. It seemed like she was having a panic attack. And I liked the idea of her writing things down and putting them away. I feel like I do that a lot. But it made me really sad because she was clearly existing in, in this world where she was having to balance the loss and the trauma of her reality as a black woman and the people that she's lost that were very near and dear to her while also trying to find peace in her bubble in her home which seemed very peaceful and loving and understanding from her sisters and they created their sort of own heaven and haven being able to have their own business you know that's a privilege and it's not it most likely wasn't common um, I think the characters even mentioned that they were surprised by that and then having the outside world kind of rear its head into their their heaven and nearly taking, you know, that nephew of Zack's life really is jarring for someone who already is dealing with so much. So that was a scene that was sad. And again, it brings forth the reality while still balancing these other concepts of black identity in a not such a stereotypical way. We do see some resolution later, again, like I said at the beginning with Lily and Rosalind, where Rosalind sort of toward the end tells Lily everything, and Lily sort of has this, you know, breakdown, feeling like her mom still didn't come back for her. She's hoping that Rosalind would tell her that her mom took her the first time, but she didn't. But Rosalind tries to tell her, like, sometimes, you know, she, she wasn't in the place to be able to care for you. She looked like a whole other person. And when she was back to herself after leaving and going basically to her version of home with Rosalind, she did go back. And then, you know, that's resolved later because Rosalind like shows her a picture that her mom had had on her and it has Lily and her mother in it. Lily was much younger, obviously. And T-Ray ends up finding Lily. He comes there threatening to take her or whatever, which doesn't happen over their dead bodies <laughs> and you know she Lily stands up to him it isn't as if she hasn't stood up to him in the past but she's clearly a lot less afraid of him and you know she's standing on her own two feet and she's looking him directly in the eye and she's asking him all the questions that she's been wanting and she's not backing down like before where she would kind of look away or flinch or you know this time she's doing none of that and she knows that she has people to back her up she even refers to the women as her mother. She has more mothers than any girl on the street, which at first I didn't know how I felt about that because it felt like the nanny thing again, but I don't know. Seeing their relationships on screen, it just felt natural. It just felt normal. It didn't feel like they were burdened by Lily and it didn't feel like Lily was just thrown at them to be taken care of. It felt like she fought just as hard for them as they had fought for her. And so I felt like that title was earned. And clearly, she's a child and they're adults, so it's going to be natural that they seem like mother figures to her more than anything else. And you also see with the character Zach, after that instance, he had to grow up really quickly because, you know, black children, I feel like, have to grow up quicker in the sense that they always have to fear. They always have this veil over them, you know, there's a double consciousness. And whatever veil was over him was ripped off after that inc incident 
and he wasn't the same, you know, that child light, childhood light in his eye was gone, sadly, and I think that's also another harsh reality for black kids in general, but specifically from the perspective of black males, that was shown here too. And yeah, we see that they get sort of their happily, happily ever after, even though May has passed, and I didn't like the, oh, I'm gonna get married now ending. It was nice to see that Lily had found peace with losing her mother and was able to fight her physical demons of her father and also, you know, f be able to fight the emotional ones as well and seeing how all of them connected and built their own community and how beautiful that was. My quote segment. This quote is being said by Lily. These are the first lines of the film when it's voiceovering after the flashback to when she was younger. I killed my mother when I was four years old. She was all I ever wanted, and I took her away. Okay. This is Lily speaking to T. Ray, also known as her father. My whole life has been nothing but a hole where my mother should have been. It always left me aching, but I never thought about what it did to you. And that's all for today. I hope that you have a great rest of your day. Thanks. Bye. Every little thing wants to be loved. <laughs>